Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor. Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor. Because of you, we'll never be lost in the middle of a dense forest without a little plastic toothpick again. Won't get lost again. What's that bulge in my pocket? It's my knife. And my tweezers. And my scissors. And my spoon. And my bottle opener. And my fish scaler. Take it to the mess. And my leather awl. And my corkscrew. And my nail file. And my paring knife. And my hat. What's a hat? So crack open an ice cold Bud Life, Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor, because you make our pockets bulge humongously with pride. Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor! Bud Light Beer, as it were, St. Louis, Missouri. The pitch ripped to left center, and this one is in the screen for a home run. Mike Marshall leads off the eighth inning with a home run into the screen in left center field. And the Pilots now lead by a score of 7-1. to one. Marshall getting his second hit. So... Drive to left field. And Haney has a home run into the screen and left. That's the second home run that Wenz has given up. And the score goes to 8-1 to one in favor of Seattle. As Marshall and Haney have homered.
The next 2-2. Two, two. Davis to left and well hit! Oh my! It's gone! From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, heels down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program. That I call Backwards K-Pop, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's good, Seamheads? What's juicy? I never move in slow mo. Welcome to my dojo. Those other pots are so so. I keep the chill like bro yo. Focus like a GoPro. I'm ripping out this promo. Check out the scoreboard, freaks. I'm throwing no nos. Ah, what, what, what? Y'all ain't know I had bars, yo. I see Buster only do that shit on his podcast show. <laughs> yeah, I'm something different. I'm a pod animal kid. What's cracking? It's your boy, Jake the Snake. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. And look, today, I love my life. I love this show, the audience. And I'm all old school, poor righteous teachers today, baby. Ready to rock this funky joint and get after it. Want to welcome all of the OGs back who have stood behind a brother from day one of this now seven-year adventure as a digital content creator, as well as all you newbies who have barreled up and served that wave into our universe. I appreciate and love you. It's my absolute honor to collect all these players, teams, stadiums, pop culture, and moments that have been woven into the history of the American pastime here at BKP. And then I get to regurgitate those tales back to you. I mean, you know, I'm blessed. And there's not going to be a lot of pregame chatter this week. The trade deadline is quickly approaching. And maybe we'll have something to spitball about in the upcoming weeks. Any major uh, moves go down. 80% of the league is still relatively in the marathon. And... I think it's having an impact on the market already. With so many teams still in the mathematical hunt, the well looks a little dry at the moment. A lot of rental free agent names that I'm seeing. And I suspect if someone breaks the ice with a game-changing player moved, the dominoes, you know, they're, they're going to begin to fall. And that will lead to some frenetic actions for sure. So, with the hot stove... Tepid at the moment. Let's jump into this week's topic. As I have always had a fascination with this story. And we have a lot of ground to cover this week. And there's a lot of moving parts to work with. In its essence, it's a very complex story to say the least. This week, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a deep dive into the story of the Seattle Pilots. And their one year 
in the MLB fraternity of franchises. It was surely doomed from its conception as many decisions along the way from pretty much everyone who had their fingerprints on the project. All of them contributed to the eventual collapse of this organization after just one season. The catcher looks like he's ready to come down. There it is. The infield is throwing that ball around the infield. And if I can get you to say goodbye to your loved ones so I can load up our BKP time travel choo-choo, as I call all aboard. And I'm going to set our time and destination to the beautiful Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Washington, opening day, April 11th, 1969. At the appropriately named Six Stadium, where Major League Baseball's newest team, the Seattle Pilots, is about to beat the Chicago White Sox seven to nothing. It's also where the citizens of King County are about to vote for a forty million dollar bond to finance a dome stadium that will eventually be called the Kingdom. If the resolution passes, Six Stadium, a city-owned Municipal Stadium and the old home of the Pacific Coast League Rainiers will serve as the expansion franchise's home field until construction is complete. So, as we bend baseball space and time to our will, hit these wormholes and route to our time and destination, why don't you see meds come on in, gather around, open your kimonos, let's get real comfortable with one another. And let me see if I can give you the backstory of how the whole idea of the Seattle Pilots was conceived. And the major characters in our story going forward. Uh, Seattle had always been a cornerstone market of the vaunted Pacific Coast League. In 1964, there was serious uh, consideration by the Cleveland Indians to move to Seattle. Charles Finley also contemplated moving his nomadic A's franchise from Kansas City to Seattle, but instead he opted for Oakland in 1967. We will get to that. And that was the same year that the city was awarded the Seattle Supersonics by the NBA. And I should note here that last week, closing out that Brooks Robinson pod, I mistakenly said that the pilots would eventually move to KC. Sometimes my mouth and my brain are not quite in sync, especially, you know, going towards the finish line. My bad on that. Honestly, sometimes I just think of all the relocation of the A's have done, and it leaves me woozy. Of course, the pilots would eventually leave for Milwaukee, not Kansas City. I realized that on the playback, so I wanted to clean that faux pas up before we go any deeper. But I digress. After receiving the Sonics, the city became even more aggressive in their major league ambitions. The city was virtually virgin territory that held a nucleus of enthusiastic fans who from 1919 to 1968 consistently crashed the turnstiles of Six Stadium to cheer on their Rainiers and later the Seattle Angels. And one of these days, I think I'm going to have to do a PCL bonus pod. I think. 
The league was a powerful entity that ruled the West Coast until the arrival of the Dodgers and the Giants in 1958-1959. However, with the inclusion of MLB teams in Los Angeles and San Francisco, the once almighty and powerful PCL, it fell on lead times as attendance in the league began to wane in the mid-1960s. Several Seattle businessmen were eager to bring baseball to Washington. Enter stage right, the Soriano brothers, Dewey and Max. Among their major investors was Joe Gandy, who was an absolute tireless booster in his efforts of a ballpark that would attract a franchise. The two major newspapers of the day, the Post-Intelligencer and the Times, well, they would beat the drum enthusiastically as the sports writers from both of these rags were obviously on board 100% from day one. Ironically, local politicians had not committed to the idea from the jump, but there were always powerful, wealthy Seattle civic leaders of the time setting the vision and the course for the Emerald City behind the scenes. One of these men uh, was Ed Carlson, the president of Western International Hotels. It was Carlson's impetus for the highly successful World Fair hosted by Seattle in 1962, and that totally changed the perception of the city. Another guy was James Ellis, one of these municipal visionary dudes. He, he, he worked tireless, tirelessly cleaning up the pollution in the waters of Lake Washington, and that's to the east of Seattle. He was at the forefront for fighting for the modernization of antiquated infrastructure for future economic development, and that included a domed, multi-purpose stadium for a future baseball team. Maybe NFL as well. The third group of decision makers in the city were the local politicians in positions of power at the time. And many of these cats, for the most part, were uninterested in sports, while still others incorporated the idea only as a campaign promise. Seattle Mayor James Diorma Branham. I oh, fit the ladder for that second group. I, I, as I mentioned, he, he, as well as his eventual successor, had zero interest in advancing sports in the city of Seattle, and even less desire in a publicly financed venue. On the other end of the spectrum, you had John Spellman, and he was the King County Executive, and his sidekick, former county commissioner, turned councilman, John O'Brien. O'Brien had been a star basketball player at Seattle University, and an infielder, and a pitcher in the pirate system, while his brother and confidant, Eddie O'Brien, would eventually become a bullpen coach for the Pilots. John O'Brien, with his local star athlete brand and deep pockets, he became an investor and a booster as well. The attempts undertaken by the city of Seattle and King County, as well as the efforts by the investors involved, it led to a bumpy road, to say the least, and in retrospect, was a harbinger of many complex challenges to come. As early as 1957, Dewey Soriano had 
proposed the idea of a conventional multi-sport stadium with a hard plastic dome in an effort to circumvent Seattle's rainy climate. In 1960, with the backing of Washington Governor Albert Rosalini, the Stafford, uh, Stanford Research Institute was hired to conduct an economic study of the region as well as the feasibility of building a dome stadium. The SRI report concluded that a stadium could be built for around $15 million and that baseball could, in fact, be a viable and profitable endeavor for the Seattle King County community. And $15 million in 1960 has the purchasing power of close to $150 million in the bloated out 2023 economy. So, with that in mind, many just figured, well, Seattle's going to be getting a team very soon, and they will be nearby playmates of the Dodgers and Giants. Stadium bonds were placed on the ballots in uh, November of 1960. A 60% supermajority was required to pass through legislation, but the bill garnered less than 48% of the vote. After the success of the Century 21 Exposition Seattle's World Fair in 1962, the boosters were motivated to try again for a baseball team. And it was Joe Gandy who assumed leadership on the World's Fair project from Ed Carlson midway through, and he would bring his vision to fruition for that World Fair. And with his type A confidence, which was only bolstered by the spectacle and success of the World's Fair, Gandy dives headfirst into revisiting the idea of constructing a new crib for a major league franchise in Seattle. The vote was set for 1964, but it was delayed until 1966. Now, during that delay, some intriguing things came to light behind the scenes that Stoke the hopeful boosters fire a little here. Gabe Paul, William Daly. They identified the Emerald City as a possible relocation destination for the Cleveland Indians. And folks, I spoke on the Indians and their financial straits many times in that Jacobs Field show, but with even more in-depth detail in the George Steinbrenner show. If you remember, the boss was very close to purchasing his hometown Indians with Gabe Paul in the center of the negotiations. In fact, this was George's dream job all of his young life, to own the Cleveland Indians and, you know, build his city a baseball powerhouse team. So when the deal sours, it would be the Hebrew hammer Gabe Paul facilitating the deal between the CBS Tiffany Network and the boss for the New York Yankees. And both of those shows are in my catalog of bangers. Go check them out if you ain't heard. So, the vote is in delay. Paul and the Indians playing that god-awful Cleveland Municipal Stadium shitbox. And hey, this this dome, it looks pretty inviting and profitable. So, they start snooping around in Seattle. When Paul asked Mayor Branham when he expected to be ready to house a team, the mayor nonchalantly responds, oh, in about five years, and the mayor's assistant chimed in, Seattle's in brimming excitement, mind you, but 
we are in favor of having a team. And as I mentioned, Mayor Branham was never on the hype train. But in this instance, his reserved answer was not entirely misplaced as a ticket sale to lure the tribe fell way short and it went over like a fart in church. So, Cleveland decides Seattle's situation is way worse than ours. And of course, we all know the tribe remains in Cleveland. And a few years later, Mr. Steinbrenner will take a crack at owning that club. In 1966, the National Football League begins deliberating for their expansion ambitions themselves, and they inform the city of Seattle that they would be given a serious consideration for an NFL team if they have a viably appropriate stadium. By this time, the price tag on the King Dome project has risen to $38 million, or $357 million in today's economy. So, again, Joe Gandy goes into overdrive, gathering support and money along the way. The sports writers begin to pound the drum again, and they dump gallons of ink in propaganda in the city rags. Even Mayor Branham is on board, to the point where he's willing to acquiesce to the will of the Washingtonians. However, in a television debate leading up to the big vote, Candy is pressed openly about why the public has to finance the stadium for private ownership. And his answers come off as weak and unconvincing. The voters would endorse the bond by 52.5%, well short of the 60% supermajority threshold needed. And again, the stadium and possibility of an NFL and MLB team in Seattle, it seemed like a pipe dream. Now, Here is the ironical plot twist in a story chock full of them. It would be A's owner Charlie Finley who would actually win Seattle a baseball team and the possibility of building the kingdom in one clear swoop. In many ways, he was also responsible for the Mariners eventually calling Seattle home after the pilots were dead and buried. Now, he didn't do this wittingly, but... He turned out to be the catalyst for Seattle's inclusion in the MLB fraternity. Now follow me here, because this is an important piece on how the city was able to secure the pilots, the stadium, and eventually the Mariners. Okay, before I go on, I want you to know that Finley at one time, much like the tribe, was intrigued by the Pacific Northwest. In 1967, he made visits to the region and even had designs on moving the A's there and settling down in Puget Sound region. He and Mayor Branham certainly had more cordial conversations than the ones the mayor had with K. Paul and the Indians. The sticking point, however, was the need for the A's to play in Sixth Stadium, which was an idea that Finley absolutely loathed especially when Oakland has a better stadium situation waiting for him in the Bay Area. And from the city's perspective, Finley's insistence on an owner's option to leave if the stadium bond issues did not resolve itself in victory after a third crack at it at the ballot box. Now, Finley's dalliances with the Emerald City 
They could have very well been a gamesmanship ploy to leverage the best deal he could out in the city of Oakland. That is certainly not beyond the realm, especially if you do a character profile study about who and what Charlie was all about. And he was all about stuffing his pockets with as much cash as possible and spending as little as possible. At any rate, Bentley moves the A's to Oaktown in 1968, which infuriates Missouri Senator Stuart Symington so bad that he intelligently, as a pissed off U.S. Senator, begins attacking the MLB establishment and its now vulnerable antitrust exemption. And I've told you before, the great thing about BKP and her amassing vaults of baseball context, content is that Many of the almost 100 shows now, they're beginning to bleed into one another. And if you heard the BKP Kaufman Stadium pod, this story might sound familiar to you as we hit on it pretty good in that one. So, in the wake of the chaos and outright anger by Finley's exodus to Cali, the senator from Missouri leans hard on the commissioner's office, demanding that not only a replacement team for the A's be put in place in Kansas City, but it also better be on the field playing on opening day the next year, 1968, rather than 1971, which had been the counterproposal. The American League, who loved having absolutely... uh, you know, absolute control over their players, not just the American League, you know, Major League Baseball... They love that control of their players. They're not wanting to have their precious reserve clause threatened. So they gave in to Senator Symington's demands. They expeditiously approved an expansion team to replace the A's in the Kansas City City Royals. And they beat the National League to the punch, planting their flag in the virginal territory of the Pacific Northwest, granting Seattle a team. Now, I'm sure most people not familiar with this story are thinking, well, cool, they got their team. What's the problem? But there is a slight problem. Up to this point, the uphill fight had been the anticipated kingdom and the cost that was attached to it. Getting the team in the Pacific Northwest was a bridge that most figured they would cross when the financing of the stadium issues had been resolved. In essence, from day one, Seattle was caught up in the celebration of now having a team, but brewing below the surface, time would become the pilot's worst enemy, as granting the team to the Emerald City, in which games would begin in the next baseball season, in essence, it caught the boosters unprepared. Starting the season in 1969, instead of a projected 1971 season, it cost the pilots' ownership two years of preparation, a fact that will cripple them in the end. The pilots had a lot of things working against them from the jump, but their worst enemy was time and lack of money. The Soriano brothers, Max and Dewey, were contacted by AL president Joe Cronin and told that they now owned a Major League Baseball club, the Seattle Pilots. Dewey, Soriano, and to some extent his brother Max, they were very good baseball men. They they knew a lot about the game. 
I mean, they really did. They had a good, if not great, mind for the game. The, the problem for them was always cash. And often Dewey Soriano's dream world would become like this veritable nightmare. As he once said, I swear to God, the whole franchise was being run on a credit card. He was born in Prince Rupert, British Columbia. He grew up in Seattle and was uh, constantly involved with the local ball clubs. He had served as a GM for the Rainiers. He even rose to the ranks of the PCL president. So, you know, he's a baseball man. Soriano had assured Cronin that he could form a local ownership syndicate. But he was never able to. Even though he and his brother were the local faces of the club, they only owned a 33% stake in the franchise. Former Indians owner William Daly, he must have been so impressed with the potential and projections when he visited Cleveland that he bought 47% of the shares and became the primary owner. Daly verbally guaranteed the $8 million, which is worth almost $66 million today. And that, you know, that was for uh, the lease required to finance the team. But he decided only in the event of cash shortages. And he would never let go of that money that he had promised. In the meantime, the Bank of California issued a $4 million loan, which is $33 million today. In May of 1969, two months into the season, the concessionaire company Sports Service provides an additional $2 million in loan. And that's in return for a 20-year contract that stated they were the exclusive concessionaires of the Seattle Pilots. Upon taking on the Fedgling Pilots, Dewey identifies assembling a front office, assuring an adequate crib for temporary use, and building the kingdom as the most pressing of priorities on his huge plate. He goes out and he hires Marvin Milks as the GM. And to say that Milks was an intense, loose cannon would be an understatement. He was a very combative feller. He fought and argument, argued with the players all the way up the chain of command to Dewey and Dale. His intense will to win every game would result in 53 different players on the 25-man roster in 1969. Bringing the team together also signaled some early financial challenges. The team purchased the contracts of outfielder Mike Hegan and Jim Bouton from the Yankees in June of 1968, almost a year before the team's debut. The expansion draft goes down in April that year, and initially Dewey's strategy was to invest in the team's future with a solid infusion of youth, but the day before the draft, he has a change of heart, the pilots are becoming a harder sell than he anticipated as ticket sales were lagging. So, he pivots and he decides he better have some veteran known hands to get some asses in these seats. Many of the guys that he selected had been stars, but were now in the back nine of their career. Aging, injured, both. They took Don Mincher, who was beaned in 1968. While playing for the Halos, Tommy Davis, who was never the same after he shredded his ankle back in 1965, Richie Rollins and his bad knees from the Twins, Steve Barber from the Yankees with a sore arm, Roy Euler from Detroit, who hit under 200 with the Pilots, 
Former Angels Marty Patton, who had his moments in Seattle. He finished 7-12. White Sox catcher Jerry McNerty. Nertney. He was solid. They also selected former Indians player Tommy Davis, who would wind up being the best draftee as he led the AL with 73 stolen bases. GM Milks would be would hire baseball lifer Joe Schultz, the St. Louis Cardinals third base coach, to take the reins as manager. Which, it wasn't a bad hire at all, considering the easygoing and affable style was a good buffer between the fiery Milks and the players. And if you remember, in last week's Brooks Robinson show, I told you about how Joe Schultz was managing Brooks on the farm, and he had to assure Brooksy that he was very much in the Orioles' future plans, and that new third baseman and future Hall of Famer George Kell was just a stopgap measure till he was seasoned a little bit more. Uh, Schultz was a player's manager, and the boys loved him wherever he went. The team held a name-the-team contest, and very few were surprised when Dewey, a part-time harbor pilot in his day, declared the pilots as the winning name. The logo was both nautical and aeronautical, as it featured a ship's wheel around a baseball with wings attached. The uniform sported a cat with a naval officer's scrambled egg on the bill. A catchy team song was adopted called Go, Go, You Pilots. I played that in the beginning of the show. The team's greatest accomplishment was signing a deal with Golden West Broadcasting uh, radio broadcasting system for $850,000 a year, which is in the $7 million neighborhood today. The network had a huge range that ran from Alaska to North Dakota all the way south to Nevada. The team was able to poach a TV play-by-play announcer named Jimmy Dudley from Cleveland to anchor the pilot's television broadcast, but a TV deal never materialized for the team. Uh, In the beginning, Soriano was looking for around $20,000 for the rights per game, eventually dropped the price to ten dollars but he could never garner interest or strike a deal, and the only play-by-play video you can find on uh, the pilots is either as a visitor or a home game on another team's feed. In a setting of pure bad luck and continuous haphazard decisions, one of the worst had to do with the ticket prices. While the average baseball ticket was 75 cents in 1968, the pilots decided that a new market of potential customers would gladly pay to watch their new team. He charged $6 for box seats, which is about $50 today, and $2.50 for the backless bleacher joints, which is about $21 today. And only the San Francisco Giants sold tickets at those prices. From the outset, ticket sales lagged. By the end of the 1969 season, the pilot's attendance was fifth lowest in all of baseball, with a total of 677,944 fans for the year. A good 150,000 spectators below, just breaking even. The quality of play wasn't too bad in the beginning. Like I mentioned, they did shut out the Chai Sox on opening day. In some ways, they were outpacing their early expectations for a while. 
Although they were 16 games under 500 at the end of July, they are in third place in the new AL West. However, the age and ability would become exposed as injuries also set in on the club and the losses began to pile up. By the end of the year, their final record was 64-98 and and only the Cleveland Indians had a worse record in the American League. And here we are, folks, pulling up on February of 1968, where the voters have approved the King County Multipurpose Dome Stadium in the vein of the Astrodome that was in Houston, Texas. And the ballots have ratified the stadium construction passed with 62% as the third time is finally the charm. So, finally some great news about the future of the pilots. Unfortunately, there are a lot of reasons for the lagging ticket sales. Most notably, well, the price I told you about, but the aptly named Six Stadium. And the team would have to reside that, that uh, you know, I mean, just awful, awful stadium while the dome is being built. Six was a state-of-the-art model, minor league park when it was completed back in 1938. And MLB insisted that the pilots bring the stadium up to major league standards. Mayor Branham and the city were determined to pay for six remodeling field, uh, remodeling fee with the team's rental fees for using the municipal building as Branham is pretty much immune to any pilot's threats of not playing in 1969. The final total came out to a five-year lease, even though the field, uh, pilot's expected to be gone in four at an annuity rate of $165,000 a year. And the 2023 economy, that is equivalent to about $1.7 million a year in rent for the club. In exchange, the city promised $1.75 million or $14.55 million today in refurbishing the park and expanding it to 28,000 seats. The timing of this agreement in September of 1968 it left seven rainy months to remodel the stadium. Initial bids coming in were 65% over budget. Corners were being cut. Seating was now scaled back to 25 grand. According to records behind the scenes in the American League offices, the stadium was never up to MLB standards. Commissioner Bowie Kuhn was embarrassed when he visited the park on opening day. All around the ballpark, instead of the sound of balls hitting bats, the sounds of the game were drowned out by hammers in the background as construction workers were still hard at work. In fact, some seats were made on the spot to order, painted quickly, and fastened into position in the concrete as the ticket was being bought. Many fans had to stand and wait for the paint to dry. An estimated 19,000 seats were completed and used on opening day. And it's highly improbable that Six Stadium ever reached the 25,000 seat quota that year. And like I said, Six Stadium was appropriately named as the building would constantly push back on the half-assed and rushed pilot's front office the sound system failed, the stadium benches were warped, and a short-circuit electrical bolt almost burned the stadium to the ground, and there was no water pressure in the park after the seventh inning. She was truly sick. 
Pacific Northwest Sports then withheld a promised surety bond, demanding extensive renovations and repair. In March of 1969, Floyd Miller replaces Branham as the mayor, and he is no more enthused with this quickly collapsing baseball venture as his predecessor was. In August of 1969, Mayor Miller threatens to evict the pilots. Daly and Cronin would have to visit City Hall and smooth things over. And even through all the pitfalls and challenges, the pilots could still rest their laurels on the promise of a new dome stadium. But after the ballot initiative in February 1968, things begin to bog down. There are now arguments over the location of the proposed kingdom. The stadium commission's consulting firm were pushing for a crib at the southern edge of Seattle, while civic leaders lobbied for the more expensive downtown real estate at the Seattle Center, where the World's Fair had gone off with so much success. Eventually, the stadium commission would stand down to the will of the civic leaders. In January of 1970, voters rejected the Seattle Center site. As a result, a whole new stadium commission would now have to start the process all over again. The ramifications of this newest debacle put the whole project in a vulnerable spot as the ballpark construction may not be under construction by December of 1970, a deadline that was imposed by the American League offices. The situation has become bleak. The region's not crazy about their team or the product. The current ballpark makes the Tropicana and Tampa Bay look like Evans Field. Relations with the community are strained at best, and moving into the new stadium is becoming a distant prospect by the literal minutes. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to break out, plot our course, figure out how I'm going to bring it home. Get this BKP time travel choo-choo back home to Terrapin Station in 2023. BRBC head. See you on the other side of the break, you freaks. Don't go anywhere. dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no face spice. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. 
an ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com There's thousands of dollars ready and waiting for lucky fans. Keep on listening. If your name is called during the home run inning, you can collect over $1,000 for a home run or $25,000 for a grand slam homer. The very next home run could have your name written on it. Well, you know, I just happened to hit a home run in the seventh inning one particular game, and and I think I won a a fan like $5,000, you know, and... And lo and behold, that fan uh, sent me a check for ten percent. Sent me a check for five hundred dollars, which I thought, my gosh, this is unheard of. You know. Well, later on, in towards the end of the year, Fred Talbot, pitcher for the Pilots, gets up with bases loaded, hits a grand slam in the seventh inning, and wins this fan twenty five thousand dollars. Fred starts off down to first base, and before he hit second base, it was decided in the bullpen that Fred should receive a telegram from Donald Dubois, <laughs> thanking him for his prodigious effort and uh, promising him $5,000 <laughs> as a token of appreciation. <laughs> so since that was my idea, I had to go to the telegraph office the next day and have a bogus telegram made up and uh, the genius moment was when I, uh, uh, dear Mr. Talbert, I misspelled his name so that it would seem like a real telegram. Anyway, so this gets put on a stack of mail in front of Fred's locker, and of course everybody knows it's a, you know, it's it's phony. And anyway, we're game goes. We play the game. We're now on the bus to the airport because we're we're heading for a road trip, and Fred's. Fred's been having a little secret smile all day long, you know, because he's got this telegram. So he's sitting on the back of the bus, Ray Euler sitting next to him, and uh, Fred says, uh, hey, Ray, take a look at this. Ray looks at it, of course he knows what it is, and he says, uh, well, uh, what, what if it's one of the guys playing a trick? Fred says, nah, if it was one of the guys, they wouldn't have misspelled my name. <laughs> 
Lana. Lana. Lana! What? <laughs> Danger zone. So this week, I've been giving you the complex backstory of the doomed life of the expansion team known as the Seattle Pilots, a life that lasted the 1969 season, after which they would fly up to Milwaukee and become the Brewers. And from the beginning, it's just an absolute mess. There's no stability in the organization. The GM is a maniac whom the players can't stand. The owner with the biggest stake is a snake who reneges on his monetary promises. The minority owners are well-intentioned, but they are weak. They have no capital to make an MLB team successful. The citizens are lukewarm to the team. The prices are outrageous. The stadium is a shining beacon of modern technology. Back when Hubert, Herbert Hoover was president, it's a dump. The mayor is ambivalent towards pro sports and is always worried about cost to taxpayers. And it took three times for the King County voters to approve bonds for the construction of the proposed kingdom. Other than that, it's just been a smashing success. By early September, Pacific Northwest has begun negotiations with the Milwaukee Brewers, a civic group spearheaded by former Commissioner Bud Sealing to relocate the team to Wisconsin. And unlike the pilots' think tank, Sealing had deep pockets and a solid infrastructure of investment partners in firms such as Schultz Beer, uh, Schlitz Beer, Evan Rude, Northwest Mutual Life, and Oscar Meyer. Also, the Brewers Group had Milwaukee County Stadium at their disposal. A deal was struck during the 1969 World Series in Baltimore to sell the pilots to the uh, Milwaukee Consortium. It became an open secret in Seattle as the baseball men there began to scramble and contemplate their next move. Uh, though the deal was signed and the team would eventually go on to become the Brewers, the pilots were not ready to give up their flight just yet. Both Washington Senators Warren Mackison and Henry Jackson, they borrowed a page from Missouri Senator uh, Symington's playbook, and they threatened the league with a legal action concerning the antitrust exemption. The Intimidated League, in turn, gave Seattle 30 days to get their shit together and devise a competing offer for the pilots. Ed Carlson led the effort mainly just to preserve Seattle's communal esteem. Fred Dans, a local theater owner, became the face of the undertaking while Carlson appealed to his fellow Seattleites' civic pride. Under the new plan, Daly would become 25% owner, and at President Cronin's insistence, the Sorianos were out. The goal was to add $4.8 million to the $4 million Bank of California loan, and they would use the $2 million advanced by sports service concessionaires to cover the purchase price, as well as furnishing operating capital of $1.7 million. On November 18, 1969, 
Dan's jumps the gun and proclaims the Seattle Pilots are here to stay. A month later, however, his tune changes when he tells the public that the Bank of California had informed the Sorianos in September that if the team was transferred, the loan would be due in full and payment would be expected. After one last futile appeal to Seattle's banks for loans to replace the Bank of California's financing as well as an unsuccessful ticket drive, the dance initiative was pronounced dead on arrival. Now, it was Ed Carlson's burden, and he took the rent. And his idea was for the pilots to become a non-profit, publicly held corporation. And to my understanding, it would have been much like the Green Bay Packers in the NFL. Carlson was a great fundraiser, a civic uh you know, civic leadership at its purest. He was able to get literally hundreds of the most influential citizens of the city to invest in the club as much as they possibly could to keep the egg off the public face of Seattle. Any profits that were reinvested that were not reinvested into the franchise would go to local city charities and youth amateur sports. When Carlson presents his plan to the American League, the owners and league presidents were dumbfounded. The owners saw this as a potential threat, fearing they would one day have to all follow suit and distribute their profits to the communities. The AL owners gave Carlson permission to create a functional ownership team, but deep down, to a man, they all hoped he would fail. Fifteen days later, February 6, 1970, there is a second meeting. Carlson now had the backing of 60 business labor organizations, and individuals. He persuaded the Bank of California and Sports Service to perpetuate the loans, and he convinced Daly to remain a partner. Everything was in place, although it's truly questionable to this day whether the prospective ownership team was sufficiently capitalized. The AL owners were still unsettled about the financing, and in no way were they on board with this uh, non-profit idea? They openly wondered who would be in charge of a publicly owned syndicate. The owners decided to keep the pilots in Seattle, retain Pacific Northwest Sports Incorporated as owners, and lend them six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Six hundred fifty grand in nineteen seventy has the purchasing power of six million dollars today. The last thing the lead wanted to do was awaken the wrath of two very powerful U.S. Senators as the league scrambled to find a buyer to save the team. Wisely, Dewey jumped off the sinking ship to leave Roy Hamey and Marvin Milks to run the team. Dave Bristol was hired as the new manager over Joe Schultz. Milks would then go on to trade many players, including Don Mincher, Diego Segui, and fan favorite Roy Euler as ticket sales are worse than the year before. The team is in utter collapse. The state of Washington sent word to Major League Baseball that it would file an $82.5 million lawsuit for breach of promise, financial damage, and fraud if the team moved. And much like KC did when Charles Finley left that market in the dust, The Washington Senators are now following suit. 
$82.5 million is worth about $686 million today. And that's big time money. I mean, that's Fox News buying off Dominion voting machines neighborhood right there. The pilots also retained a court order against relocation. Pacific Northwest Sports Incorporated decided not to continue in this clusterfuck, and their only solution was to declare bankruptcy. Naturally, the writing was on the wall, and it was plain to see that if the declaration was approved, the sale to the Milwaukee Brewers would, uh, would be a bankruptcy court's easy remedy. The deal to sell the Seattle Pilots to Bud Sealy Group in Milwaukee it became official on March 8, 1970. The only thing missing was AL approval. The last pathetic days of the Pilots were spent in court. In the morning, the club went before hearings in King County Superior Court over the restraining order. In the afternoon, the federal bankruptcy courts were listening to their arguments. Pacific Northwest Sports asserted that they lost... Around $2.3 million in 1969. They were unable to pay the debt. That is more than $191 million today. And not to mention, if player salaries are deferred by 10 days, then they all become free agents. With the regular season looming just days away, and with the truck drivers uh, literally waiting, trying to figure out if they are delivering gear to Seattle or Milwaukee, the $10 million offered by the Brewers Consortium was too attractive a solution to ignore. Pacific Northwest Sports Incorporated was declared bankrupt. The injunction against moving the team had already been stayed. On April 2nd, 1970, the formal papers were signed and made official. So, with the Brewers font newly stitched on the old Pilots jerseys, the team opened the season at Milwaukee's County Stadium against the California Angels. On April 7th, the court ruling protected Pacific Northwest Sports from any lawsuits. And like I told you, it was Charlie O'Finley himself that did still say baseball in Seattle unwittingly when he left a pissed off senator in Missouri. Since the American League was considered liable, the state of Washington sued the junior circuit. And much like Senator Symington, they had, had threatened to do uh, to, the, to baseball two years prior. And after six years of litigation, the league settled out of court in 1976 and they would grant the market the Mariners, who would make their debut a year later and they're still there today. The Pilots became only the second team in Major League history to last only one season. Ironically, the only other time it happened before was in 1901 when the team that would eventually consume them, the Milwaukee Brewers, bolted to St. Louis to become the Browns after the 1900 season. The bottom line is the Seattle Pilots story is one of more errors than hits and an abundance of bad decisions on top of bad decisions. The American League's overreach and its eagerness to stake out new territory. They didn't put the city of Seattle in the best position to be successful. Attendance fell well short of expectations. Charging the hard, highest prices in the league certainly hurt that product. Ownership was undercapitalized. Only daily had the wealth to absorb even moderate losses 
and he reneged on his $8 million pledge to screw up the franchise. Six Stadium was a dump. The squabbles over the kingdom were unproductive and a burden for the struggling club. And for the investors, it was bittersweet. For the civic leaders, it brought more embarrassment than pride. And for state and city politicians, it was an annoying distraction. In short, Seattle just wasn't ready on such short notice in 1969. Groundbreaking for the kingdom, it didn't take place till three years after the pilots flew off to Milwaukee. And the Mariners would plant their flag in Seattle seven years later with a brand new state-of-the-art kingdom. And I didn't go much into, you know, the play of the team and the players. The team was not very good, but there are some great stories there. I highly recommend two books that I used in my research. The first book, Ball Four, by pitcher Jim Bouton. He has great stories about the boys on that team. And I believe in my heart, this is... This is probably the greatest non-fiction baseball book I have ever read. I cannot stress enough how much you should read this book. If you want to read a great baseball book, check out Ball Four by Jim Bouton. The second book was written by my good friend Rick Allen. It's called Inside Pitch. In fact, I did a one-on-one interview with Rick when he released this book. And I got my secret operative, the head... T.J. Gordon, he just put that interview together and he put it out on the YouTube channel this week. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Both of these books cover the pilot's debacle from different perspectives. Ball 4 by Jim Bouton is about all the amazing characters who played on that team. And Inside Pitch by Rick Allen deals with the business side and all the ramifications from the ill-fated pilot's inaugural and final season. And both of these books I highly recommend, you know, if you're capable of reading. And look, I don't judge. I could care less if you can't read. I can barely speak in an articulate manner. And you guys keep me in the pod game. So if you can read, by all means, put those books on your shelf. Only those with hope at their backs launch paper airplanes of possibility. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamheads of all ages, this is the story of the flight of the Seattle Pilots. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed telling it, and I promise to be better next week. Before I make like a nose and buggy, if you're in the Denver area, you should stop by the National Ballpark Museum on Blade Street. It's just a long fly ball away from Coors Field. My boys, Danny and Bruce, they'd love to show you around the joint, answer all your baseball questions. They have amazing exhibits from the Baltimore uh, baseball stadiums around the world, from the throwbacks to the modern, and they love to play backwards K-Pod over the speakers. So you learn a few things from the exhibit and the pod playing in the background. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Check those guys out. I love my dudes out at the National Ballpark Museum on Blake Street in Denver, Colorado. I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. No Twitch, no Patreon, no pay-to-play subscriptions. Never going to happen. I would never pay for any podcast ever. And I will never do that to you, freaks. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and do the work. That's how I'm going to get to where I'm going. I'll be coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke.
You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my boy Pedro. So, with the Seattle pilots slowly disappearing in my rearview mirror, I turn my focus to our baseball hydra who was staring back at me. And with one quick swing of my katana, I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in this place. Next week. Yeah, look. I'm intrigued by this. Next week. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. I'm, I'm going to take a look at one of the most popular baseball-based ga- games ever, Stratomatic. And if I'm being honest, I've never played Stratomatic before, and I know, know virtually nothing about it. But as always, I'm ready to learn and maybe teach you guys a few things. So I'm going to step out of my comfort zone a little bit uh, and see what I can find out about this game. I'm kind of interested in it. I've never played it. I know a lot of people that have. So I'm kind of interested about it. You know, I, I really want to learn about Stratomatic. Um, and that's here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ballplayers in the story. You got something to say to me? I ain't hard to find. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. I'm all over the place. Available on all podcast platforms. My website is diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. You can find us on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal handle is at jrobbie1. That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. Our YouTube channel is Backwards K-Pod. I just told you the head. He put our one-on-one interview with author Rick Allen about the Seattle Pilots up yesterday. So go check that out. And we have a private Facebook group page called the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Please remember to share the show with all your little Seamhead buddies. If you're on a platform that gives you the ability to rate and review my performance, please do so as you see fit. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anyone else. I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings when I say that, but it's fact, 100%. I had a guy with a Kobe Bryant profile pic give me shit last week about blah, 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 your brand. Well, dude, it's only blah, blah, blah to you because you can't even dream of creating anything that is profitable. The closest you will ever come to greatness is your Kobe Bryant profile pic, brother. And I mean that with every fiber of my bit. Thanks for the hate mail. I love it. Now go GFY. And that, my friend, is how you do a mic drop, right? <laughs> Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch with their nose in a bowl like a board AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand said in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, go to hell, independent. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace.